today as we get back into our study, if you were with us, we wrapped up our 30th study on that time known as the tribulation. Most of the book of of Revelation deals with the tribulation, chapter 6 all the way through chapter 18. By the time we finished that, in fact, I, I did something at the end that I've never done before. I covered an entire chapter of Revelation in one sermon. Chapter 17 took about an hour. The next Sunday, one entire chapter, chapter 18, in one sermon. You were probably wondering, what was happening to speed me up like that? Well, I can tell you what was happening. God was answering your prayers. Um, Well, that too. But actually, I wanted to get out of the tribulation. We'd spent so much time in it. So we finished up going through chapter 18. As I prepared to re-engage with you in this study... It occurred to me that what we really ought to do is set the stage for the next event in prophetic scripture following the tribulation. The most magnificent and glorious scenes ever seen on planet earth. We just sung of them with emerald courts and sapphire skies. That will be true. In order to set the stage for that, what I want to do is look at where we've been briefly in our session today. I know you have it all down pat by now, of course. But let's take this study and review, especially for those new friends we want on the same page with us. Now, if you've ever been to a play, and maybe you've had a homespun play in your living room. We watched videos over one of our holidays in a little house at the beach, and we brought all our home videos with us, and we laughed till we cried. Our twin sons and our daughter, a year and a half younger than them, uh, were performing plays and they'd do the Mary Joseph every Christmas and baby Jesus and they'd come out in the bathrobes and the towels and then they'd disappear. Our hallway was sort of backstage and we could hear them back there and, uh, okay, arguing and talking about who goes out next and Mary and Joseph are having a fight over baby Jesus. Um, (laughs) Laughed and laughed and laughed. But if you've been to something a little more sophisticated, maybe a middle school play with your kids or a high school play, or maybe you've been to Broadway, and uh, you, you know how it works in between scenes, the curtain drops, and you can hear movement, maybe a bump or two. If there's a gap between the curtain and the floor, uh, the stage floor, you can see feet moving around. Of the stage, you can hear the sliding of furniture and other set pieces that are being put into place. You can't see him, but you know the stage manager is back there somewhere uh, in control of all the moving parts, directing the stage crew and, and, and readying the actors to make sure that every prop and every person is in place. And then the curtain rises. And the audience is swept into another scene as the drama moves forward. That's us right now. We are the audience. We are watching and and listening while the stage is being set for the next dramatic scene in the prophetic calendar. The curtain is closed, so we can't see all the details, but there are glimpses of movement there are spaces here and there we catch. We, we can't interpret all of the sounds 
perfectly that we hear. We, we do know that, that the director is in control and all the set pieces and players are under his sovereign direction as the stage is being set before the curtain goes up and the next event, which is the rapture of the church, takes place. And that leads me to say quickly, if you've never given your heart, life, body, soul, mind to Jesus Christ, do it now. Do it now. Before the curtain goes up, maybe even before the sermon is over, accept Christ as your sovereign Lord now. You don't have to walk up at the end of the service. You don't have to join this church. You don't have to sign a card. You don't have to go through baptismal waters. You don't have to turn over a new leaf. Those will be evidences that you really did come to Jesus Christ, but they come after the fact. You can settle it with God right now where you sit. And I exhort you to do that. The curtain could go up today. Now when you attend a play, the more sophisticated kind, you typically get a program, don't you? And it tells you the scenes that are rolling out, those that will occur next. In fact, you get a brief synopsis of each scene. And you can look ahead. Now the body of Christ has been given that kind of program. It's this book of Revelation along with prophetic scripture throughout the Old Testament. And of course much of it in the New as well. We can read a brief synopsis of each scene that will occur. As well as a list of scenes yet to unfold. So by studying our program, taking it at face value, we know that, that we're right now in the first few chapters of Revelation. In chapters 1 through 3, this period of time known as the church age. And we also know that when the curtain rises on the next scene, the rapture of the church, that what will follow closely after that then is the tribulation period. And then after that, the, the kingdom of Christ on earth. And after that, the eternal state. And I'm sure you have all that down pat, right? Well, let's slow it down a little. I want to push the rewind button before we get to the next scene. I have outlined the book of Revelation, in fact, before we ever started, into four main sections. I gave you that outline when we started two plus years ago. Some of you might have lost it, so let me give it to you again. The first section is chapters one through five, which I've outlined as the sovereignty of Christ in his church. The church appears in the first five chapters of Revelation. In the first three chapters of Revelation, the church is on earth. In chapters four and five, the church is in heaven. Not surprisingly, then, after chapter five, there are no more appearances of the church on earth until after chapter 18. Why? Because from chapter six to chapter 18, through chapter 18, the time of tribulation occurs on planet earth and the church has been promised to be removed out of, chapter 3, verse 10, away from Ek, apart from, the language says, the presence of God's wrath on earth during the tribulation period. So chapters 1 through 5 have as their focus the sovereignty of Christ in his relationship to his bride, the church, first seen on earth, and then seen worshiping in heaven. The second major division of our program 
is the severity of Christ in his chastisement. And this is the bulk of the body of this revelation. This is the tribulation period where God pours out his wrath on humanity and and planet earth. To set the stage for the next event of God's calendar. What exactly, in review, is this period of time? Well, the period of time on this timeline that takes place between these two yellow arrows... One arrow refers to uh, the church going up and the rapture being caught away as the Latin, which gives us our word rapturo or rapture from Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church. And the arrow coming down represents the return of Christ with the church to set up his kingdom. Between those two arrows are seven years of unparalleled human suffering, demonic activity, Cosmic disturbance, Jewish awakening, gospel preaching, and global crises that the world has never seen before. The four horsemen representing the four opening seals, the four riders of the apocalypse, unleash those initial plagues of God's wrath and human suffering through one act of judgment after another. What will follow are cosmic disturbances, the moon turns to blood, the sun in eclipse and then flaring to strike the earth with great heat. Natural disasters are going to come one after another, striking the earth over and over again as the angels sound trumpets signifying new, uh, fresh disclosures of God's wrath. And then the final blows of God's judgment depicted as bowls tipping over pouring out as, as if the wrath of God was water being poured out upon the earth. We have spent quite a lot of time studying that progression of time revealed to us in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. Uh, no one, as we've studied, will be worshiping this tortured earth anymore. God will bring more damage to the planet he created than mankind could ever conceive of. No one will be worshiping Mother Earth anymore. And as we've said, there will be no more Earth days during the tribulation. Mother Nature will no longer be a, a cute little title for the politically correct. She will effectively, as it were, become a monster of great torment. Why? Because the created order which by this time in Revelation has reached the status of divinity and the universe considered almighty, which by the way is interesting, we're there now. Creation will by the command of the creator turn on mankind and nature will become the agent in God's punishing hand. The world will discover their error and their false idols. Matthew Henry wrote more than a century ago, this pastor commentator, that the unbelieving world thinks that everything in creation belongs to them. He wrote, they believe this is their planet, their earth, their air, their sea, their rivers, their world, and that they alone have the right to judge it. Well, here in this period of time, they will discover that all along this was the creator's earth. This is his planet. 
This is his air, his sea, his rivers, his world, and he alone has the right to judge. And God will use the idols of mankind to crush mankind. Nature will run riot as natural disasters along with following diseases and unparalleled crime and starvation, they will reach such devastating levels that by the end of the tribulation, coffins will not be able to be crafted fast enough and corpses will lie out in the open. In fact, Revelation informs us that by the end of the tribulation, half the world's population will be dead. During the seven-year period between those arrows, primarily the last half of that period of time, that Christ adds the word great to the word tribulation. This will be the time when the Antichrist declares himself to be God. He will put up an image of his own claim to deity. He will demand that the world worship him. Demonic activity will run rampant as Satan and his Antichrist have their way in ruling the world. Now, why does all of this unfold? What is the purpose, again, of the tribulation? Well, first and foremost, for Israel. And you need to know that. In fact, if you miss Israel in all of this being reconstituted, you miss so much of what God has in store. I remember reading one critic in my last couple of years of study, a critic of Revelation, who said, the book of Revelation is so Jewish. Well, it is. All the prophecies of Israel's regathering and awakening come to pass in Revelation as Israel is not only regathered but converted. Isaiah, Amos, Zechariah, Daniel, and and more. These prophets spoke with certainty of Israel's national conversion as an ethnic elect people returning to the land of their fathers. And maybe we've, in our lifetime, begun to see that happening. In fact, you need to understand that one of the ongoing evidences, and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. I like saying it. God will, one of the reasons, the evidence is that we know God will keep his covenant promise to this ethnic people of Israel, is that Israel not only exists today, but they, they still, after thousands of years, have a national conscience and a, a national heritage and a national vision from Father Abraham thousands of years ago uh, to today. The Hebrew people exist. Remarkable. You know, when the Olympics were held not too long ago, maybe you watched the opening ceremonies. Amazing. And all the nations represented and their athletes marching into the stadium during the opening ceremonies. You did not see one athlete from the Hittite nation, did you? No. You didn't see any of the Ninevites perform either, did you? Or the Girgashites or the Jebusites or the Amorites or what I like to say, all the other mosquito bites. You didn't see any of them. You, you did not see one Philistine competing in the long jump. Why? They were long gone, absorbed into the peoples of the world, but not the Israelite. 
The tribulation will be that period of time when ethnic Israel, this elect nation Paul speaks of in Romans 11, will experience national conversion and they will see Christ descending as he sets up his kingdom. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. And I want to make another statement here too, maybe the last time if you keep praying. The tribulation is not a time for the church to suffer the wrath of God, then or at any time, for that matter. I, you know, I've had people say to me, Stephen, the only reason you believe in the rapture is because you don't want to go through the tribulation. Duh. <laughs> it's an ancient Hebrew word. You speak when in the presence of brilliance. Okay? No kidding. I don't say that. I don't go duh when people say that. Um, But I'll usually ask them, well, well, why do you think the church should suffer through the tribulation? And I'll invariably get an answer back that says something like, because the church needs to be purified. Well, first of all, it's terrible theology, both practically and biblically. It's terrible practical theology. Because when somebody says the church really needs to be purified first before it, it enjoys the kingdom of God, I want to ask them, which church? Are you reading the news? Are you watching? Are you talking about the church in Sudan? Where thousands of believers have been martyred in the last decade for their faith in Christ? Are you talking about the church in Iran? Or Saudi Arabia where to accept Christ is to lose your life? Are you talking about the church in China? where that nation is still imprisoning and torturing those who believe. You know, the problem with a person who says something like that is they're interpreting prophecy through American eyes, through Western eyes. The blood of the martyr is flowing around this globe in our lifetime more than ever before. I received the latest publication from the voice of the martyrs organization which surveys globally the world scene for and, and it records testimonies of those who are dying for their faith in Christ. Anybody who would just read their record would not say, we need the tribulation because the church isn't suffering and it needs to suffer. It needs to be purified. We know the church suffers. It's been promised to suffer, but not be purified by the wrath of God. Testimonies. I'll give you a couple of them. Like this evangelical pastor. And by the way, the updated version that I got sent in the mail covers, it adds the years 2000 to 2006. Benesti Escobar in Colombia was confronted by Marxist soldiers as they stormed into their church service one Sunday morning. And they dropped onto the floor the body of a Christian they just killed. They told that 35-year-old pastor that unless he left their village, he would end up like this person. Then they walked out. He refused to leave. Two weeks later, they returned to that church service in progress, walked up, and shot him in the leg, warning him again to cease his preaching in their community. He refused, saying that he would rather obey God than men. Sound familiar? They said they would return in two weeks. They kept their promise. Returned two weeks later, walked in, 
dragged him out of the pulpit and into the street where in front of his wife, children, and congregation shot him repeatedly until he died. Go to North Korea. His testimony was smuggled out where North Korean Christians were herded together, this assembly, and all the children were taken from them to be hung unless the parents recanted. The parents refused to recant their faith in Christ. And as their children were being hanged, as a congregation, these adults all began to sing together through their tears, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. We're talking about that church? Country after country after country today is experiencing the growing anger of the enemy and those representing him and the host of martyrs who will sing one day in unique expression to the glory of God is growing. So when I hear some well-meaning believers say the church needs to go through the tribulation because it needs to be purified, I think how utterly embarrassing. Wake up! Read. You're going to have to dig because the Western media shuts it down. But it's out there. It's also poor biblical theology, not just poor practical theology. It relates to the doctrines of, of truth revealed to us about the Christian's position in Christ. The Christian does not have to be further purified in order to enter God's presence. The Christian is purified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 We are not earning the righteousness of Christ. We have the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 3 verse 9, You don't have a righteousness of your own derived from the law or keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Ladies and gentlemen, we're not earning it. We have it. Furthermore, the church does not merit the grace of God that's on biblical theology. More than a billion people on the planet believe that. There's not a list of things to do to earn the grace of God. We have been given the grace of God through the merit of Jesus Christ alone. By the way, grace is defined biblically as unmerited or undeserved favor from God. In other words, if you earned it, it would not be grace. Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, in Christ we have, that is now, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us, Ephesians 1.8. And we watched the scene unfold as the church was raptured singing to their gracious redeemer, the church symbolized by the 24 elders wearing white garments as Christ promised the church, wearing crowns upon their heads as Christ promised the church, seated upon thrones as promised by Christ to the church. In fact, reinforced by the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Corinthian Christians these words that are startling if you ever want to sit down and meditate on them. Do you not know that the saints will one day rule the world? 
In other words, the church in heaven during the tribulation will return with Christ as the tribulation comes to a close and as Christ sets up his kingdom, we, the bride of Christ, will serve as co-regents with him, ruling and reigning during this dazzling, glorious kingdom on earth for a thousand years with its economies and its businesses and its exploration and its developments. And we will be in the administration of the emperor serving him. And that's what will begin our study, Lord willing. Now, while we do not know when the rapture will occur, we do know that after the rapture occurs, sometime after, the tribulation will begin. There's a period of time. We're not sure how long it will be before the tribulation begins. But we do know that it begins with the signing of some kind of peace treaty that brings peace to Israel as prophesied. And delivered to us in Revelation. Matthew chapter 24 and Revelation chapter 6 provided for us a complementary commentary on one another. And we learned that the tribulation began with the presence of a leader who was able to bring peace to the Middle East, particularly with Israel in mind. The peacemaker will soon be revealed as the Antichrist. He's able to broker this peace, which seems to settle things down for the first half of the tribulation. But at that midpoint, he begins his bloodbath as he seeks to exterminate the Jewish people. That's one of the reasons the Jews flee from the Antichrist who seeks to wipe them out along with those who believe in in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is more than anti-Semitism. This is Satan's attempt to keep the prophecies of a reconstituted nation of Israel from their land, which if he can do that, if he can wipe them off, he can then what? He can make null and void any further prophecies from being fulfilled of Christ ruling from Jerusalem, from David's throne. And so we studied at length the flight of the Jews warned by Jesus in Matthew 24. When you see these things happening, you better run. Don't worry about packing clothing or storing food. You just run because of all these horrors that will be unleashed on the planet. And uh, most evangelical scholars, or many that I read, have suggested that they flee, many of them who can, who can get away, to a place called Petra. It's a wonderful hiding place, and I'll review that quickly. We looked at that concept together. Most of the buildings in this ancient city were literally carved into the sandstone hills about a thousand years before Jesus Christ was born. Around A.D. 551, the 6th century, an earthquake Occurred and it caused uh, the people to abandon these built in uh, homes, these literally the city, fearing for their lives should the mountains collapse. Some of the buildings, they're not just rough hewn, some of them are beautifully carved into the mountains. Excavations have revealed in, in, uh, through these openings major highways and, and boulevards and shops and, and homes. Petra was rediscovered in earnest in 1812. It's been a point of fascination and excavation ever since. One of the reasons Petra would make such a great place to retreat and hide during the tribulation is the fact that it would be easy to defend should they be found. Most of the buildings can only be reached on foot or donkey or camel. 
In fact, enemy soldiers would have a difficult time sending a large army into this area without having to march in single file. Since much of Petra is surrounded by sheer cliffs, this would certainly be a wonderful area to protect and an area in which to hide. We also learned that the Antichrist's agenda is not only the extermination of the Jewish people, but the exaltation of his own divinity. He will forge together one world government, a one world political body, a one world economy, and he will rule. Now the concept of a one world government and a one world economy, in fact a one world religion, are not new. They've been around a long time. Throughout history, the world of mankind has fought for world domination. In fact, just read the record of Alexander the Great who hoped one day to rule the world from Nimrod's rebuilt Babylon. Read of Napoleon who attempted also to unify the world under his control. And he also, in fact, he had plans drawn up for the rebuilding of Babylon There in modern-day Iraq, from which he wanted to rule the world. Where did he get that idea from? Well, none of the attempts at a unified world system under the rule of one man is yet to succeed. But just look around. Just listen at the rising volume, the the rising rhetoric of nations clamoring for a a one-world political government, a one-world economy. In fact, if you look at all the many, I should say, of the, the major religious bodies sort of chucking overboard uh, convictions relative to whatever they believe in their hope to somehow forge a unified religion, you can't help but wonder if the curtain is going to rise soon. You can't help but wonder if those footsteps that you see <laughs> under the stage curtain scurrying around And the sounds, they might be of props being slid into place that that, that it's signaling that, that this is indeed the prelude in world history where the curtain will soon rise, the church raptured, and the tribulation and the forging of this one political global system completed. You know, I found it fascinating after having studied this with you, to just read the news, and several news items came across my desk. I'll share two quickly with you. Um, the summit was held by the largest governments in the Northern Hemisphere, commonly known as G8. The delegations that met included the United States, Canada, France, the United Kingdom, Russia, Germany, Japan, Italy, and Canada. And each year, these countries hold a summit meeting and and, and, and to talk together and strategize. And part of their agenda, growing agenda, is a discussion regarding a, a one-world economy, a, a global economic system regulated by, a, by the powers that be. In fact, what really made news after the G8 summit, uh, following this latest summit, was the president of Russia. The president of Russia in a news conference, called for a currency to replace the dollar and the euro and every other national currency. He even pulled out from his pocket a sample coin, a coin that had already been minted in Belgium 
It was presented, by the way, to each delegation. You can Google this and see the presentation to our own president. On the face of the coin are the words unity in diversity. And the president of Russia said, and I'm paraphrasing, the fact that these coins are being minted means we are getting ready. He said, it's a good sign for we now understand how interdependent we are. From what I further learn, Russia and China in particular are interested in seeing this global currency rolled out. Another news item caught my eye on the eve of this G8 summit. Pope Benedict XVI issued a statement that was presented, in fact, to all of the G8 leaders before they went into their summit meeting. It's called an encyclical. It's one of the most official documents presented by the Vatican. And in this, he called for these leaders and I'm quoting, to establish a world political authority to oversee the economies of our world. And he went on to urge the members of these eight industrial giant nations to work together to form, quote, a global political body. And I just hear the feet scurrying behind the curtain. This particular pope has already joined other religious leaders, including the Uh, One Middle Eastern king who surprised everyone when they are together now calling for unity among the major religions of the world, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. If you go back and you just read 10 years ago what one nearly prophetic voice said, I'm not even sure he's a believer, but he spoke with interesting precision, Robert Reich of Harvard University. He said this 10 years ago. He said, we are living through a transformation that will rearrange the politics and economics of the 21st century. And each nation's primary political task will be to cope with the centrifugal forces of a global economy. This is no surprise to prophetic scripture. Either now or later, it will all come to pass. And we are... Studying, in fact, we finished studying the rise of a 10 nation coalition as described by the Apostle John. It will be headed by the Antichrist and it will succeed finally. And all of these leaders, religious and political, will get their wish. There will be a one world economy, there will be a one world government, and there will be a one world religion. The only problem is if you want to enter into it, you've got to have a mark on your right hand. Or forehead, and ultimately give allegiance to the leader of it all, the Antichrist. Babylon will be rebuilt. Just as Nimrod attempted back in Genesis 11 to defy God as he brought the peoples together when God had commanded them to scatter and fill the earth, he brought them together in this region between the Tigris and Euphrates, rivers, that river valley, and he built the Tower of Babel, and they said, we'll build it, we'll basically replace God. And they created the Zodiac. One author said that the gods of the Babylonians have simply been repackaged throughout human history. It all started here. So the last Nimrod, the Antichrist, will call everybody together in one unified voice to defy God and ultimately march against his city and his kingdom. Just as Nimrod's ancient Babylon was the first city of man to defy God, so the Antichrist's 
rebuilt Babylon will be the last city of man to defy God. And they're on the banks of those same rivers in modern-day Iraq, the capital city of Babylon, according to Revelation 17 and 18, will be rebuilt, and it will become the capital city for Antichrist's worldwide empire. Babylon will rise again. Is what's happening over there part of this? We don't know. It could crumble back and then be rebuilt a thousand years from now, but we do know that when the curtain rises, Babylon will indeed be rebuilt. It is fascinating to watch what's happening over there now, to know that our own government has committed dollars to rebuilding that capital city. You see, after Nimrod was defeated by virtue of God's confusion, remember all of mankind's unified language split into many languages, Genesis 11, for centuries after that it lay fairly insignificantly on the dust there in the Middle East. But then it was rebuilt by Babylon. No doubt in my mind, Satan thought he had his man until God brought him low. It was rebuilt to an unrivaled splendor under the rule of this king named Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar uh, built the empire city of Babylon more gloriously than any city had ever been built before. His hanging gardens that he built for his homesick wife, one of, one of his wives, became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Gardeners working there on those terraced levels 24-7, and you can hardly get an hour to pull the weeds out of your yard. Can you imagine having a gardener 24-7, the things you could do? We had that. The walls and, and the gates of Babylon were equally stunning. The most famous inner gate of Babylon was called the Ishtar Gate. We talked about that. I'll just briefly review it. Named in honor of Ishtar, the Babylonian goddess who was considered the queen of heaven. The gate of Ishtar was made of blue slate tiles and painted with gold dragons and bulls. It was built by Nebuchadnezzar and was considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. In fact, much of the gate going back to Nebuchadnezzar has been excavated and you're looking at a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's Ishtar gate, a portion of it. You can still see some of the blue tiles there. That inscription on it, I'll read you some of the translation of that inscription. It was actually ordered by Nebuchadnezzar himself about himself. It says this, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the faithful prince appointed by the will of the gods, or Marduk, their chief god, has learned to embrace wisdom, who understood their divine being and reveres their majesty, these gods of Babylon. The untiring governor who is constantly concerned with the well-being of Babylon, the wise, the humble, I like that part, the king of Babylon. Near the end of the inscription, he dictated these words, I placed bulls and ferocious dragons in the gateways and thus adorned them with luxurious splendor so that people might gaze upon them in wonder. And the world, even to this day, does marvel, doesn't it? As they entered through those gates back in the days of the glory of Babylon, the greatness of this city of man, it was, by the way, this particular Babylon that defeated Jerusalem and took the people of Israel captive in the Babylonian captivity. 
One particular Jewish exile would walk through these very gates depicted by this artist based on excavations. And he probably, with mouth open, gaped at the stunning sight of such power and magnificence that he had never, ever seen before. And yet that exile would grow up, eventually rise as second in command under Nebuchadnezzar in that kingdom. And his name was Daniel. And this man of God would one day prophesy while he lived in this empire, this capital city, that there would come a day when this city of man would be destroyed by the city of God. John adds the details that we've studied thus far in Revelation. That Babylon will be rebuilt to greater glory than before. It will try once again at the end of human history to overthrow the new Jerusalem as it sees it descending. And in that great battle of Armageddon, the city of man will be crushed. Since the time of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon crumbled back into dust. Saddam Hussein attempted to rebuild some of its glory. In fact, he claimed kinship from his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Saddam even rebuilt a smaller version of the Ishtar Gate, where tourists can go and see it now. I've seen a number of pictures with our Marines standing in front of it. He didn't quite bring back the glory. He even rebuilt some of Nebuchadnezzar's palace and surrounding walls. In fact, the lower bricks are Nebuchadnezzar's upon which he built his, attempting to bring back the glory of Babylon with himself as ruler, but he failed, didn't he? The only one who will succeed to the measure of what God reveals to us in the book of Revelation will be the Antichrist, empowered by Satan himself, rebuilding. And the city of man will eventually march against Jerusalem, the city of God, and be defeated with one word. One word of the returning King of Kings and Lord of Lords. At that moment, as that battle ends and the new Jerusalem descends, the next major section, the third section of Revelation unfolds. We've studied the sovereignty of Christ in his church, chapters 1 through 5. We've studied the severity of Christ in his chastisement, chapters 6 through 18. And now we're ready to begin studying this third section in Revelation, which I've outlined as the supremacy of Christ in his coming And we have absolutely no idea apart from a careful study of how glorious this kingdom is going to be. No idea. I trust we'll have a better idea after we spend a little time, maybe a lot of time, in that section. Now, some of you type A students heard me say earlier today that I've outlined the book of Revelation into four sections, and I've only given you three of them. And... And you're going to come up to me after the service and ask me what the fourth section is called. So I'll give it to you now. The satisfaction of Christ in his new creation. Chapters 21 and 22. Now how long will it be before we study this fourth and final section on heaven? I don't know. We just might enter it before we study it for all we know. But I am convinced the stage is being set. We we can see movement underneath the curtain. We can hear muffled sounds that indicate the props on the stage of human history are being set for the next scene. Ultimately, here's what it will be 
I love it, and I'll summarize it with this old gospel chorus that sums it up rather simply. I shared it with you over a year ago. I'll say it again. It it goes like this. It won't be old Buddha who's sitting on that throne. And it won't be old Muhammad that's calling us home. It won't be Hare Krishna who plays that trumpet tune. Because we're going to see the sun, not Reverend Moon. (laughs) Amen to that? Let's pray. Father, we look over our shoulder and we see history as indeed his story. You are the divine manager of this stage of human history. We find comfort and reassurance in knowing that just as you have controlled the nations of our world in the past, so you have your eternal destinies for each one prepared. We thank you that we are not in this company who will, during this tribulation period or ever in the eternal state, ever suffer your wrath, for we have become the recipients of your grace. Our eyes that were were blinded by the God of this world to the light of the glorious gospel have been opened. And we have left this funeral march. We belong to the bridal party. And there is more ahead than we could ever imagine. We thank you today. We thank you that our faith is upon your word and your spirit giving us insight into its truth. Our faith is built upon our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we thank you, triune God. 